Welcome to the Good Neighbours podcast. This is a series on the UK and its relations with the EU and European countries after Brexit. We look at the EU-UK relationship, consider how the relationship compares with the EU's relations with its other neighbours, and discuss the UK's new bilateral relations in Europe. I'm Hussein Kassin, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and a Senior Fellow of the UK and Exchange in Europe. And I'm Cleo Davis, Senior Research Associate at UEA. Before I introduce the episode and our guests, I just want to let our listeners know that there is some background noise that was picked up during the recording and hope you can bear with us and enjoy the discussion. In this episode, we're looking at UK foreign policy before and after Brexit and where Europe fits. We're delighted to welcome our two distinguished guests, the Right Honourable Baroness Neville Jones, DCMG, a British politician, Conservative peer and Minister for Security and Counterterrorism in the 2010-2015 coalition government. Dame Pauline was a member of the diplomatic services from 1963 to 1995, during which time she served as chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee from 93 to 94. And Richard Whitman, Professor of Politics and International Relations and a member of the Global Europe Centre at the University of Kent. Richard has held senior positions at Chatham House, has chaired both UASIS and BISA, and has published widely on the European Union's international role and the UK's foreign policy. He recently stepped down as editor of the Journal of Common Market Studies. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast on the UK's foreign policy. Uh, I'd like to start with a question about you, the UK foreign policy that goes back some some way before Brexit. First of all, how would you characterise post-war UK foreign policy and how significant for its international role and relationships was the UK's entry into the European Economic Community in 1973? I'll turn to you, Pauline, first. I suppose the dominant element in UK foreign policy in the uh, 60s and 70s was containment, containment of Russia and the avoidance of nuclear war. Uh, so we had a very strong, strongly uh, security, indeed, I would say, defence-oriented uh, foreign policy. And most of the policies that accompanied that main main aim uh, which was regarded as being the safety of the territory, you know, were guided by and very strongly influenced by that, those those priorities. Pauline's Pauline's focus on on you know the Cold War is an important one because of course you know the UK was as a as a Euro Atlantic power concerned about the the balance of power in Europe and obviously the major feature in Europe was the Cold War, but but the UK was until the late nineteen sixties you know had a whole series of treaty and, and defence commitments outside Europe, and, and those became progressively more difficult to sustain because of the cost of, of managing those. Now, of course, we refer to that region as the Indo-Pacific, uh, uh, and, and the UK is, is going back to that uh, in a different uh, way. So there is a sort of past or, or current connection uh, with, with the past. But I think also diplomatically, obviously, a major focus was to join the community, which was a, a priority for British diplomacy uh, in Europe, uh, where there was a, a Conservative government, obviously, which pursued that uh, in the first uh, instance. And as, as we know, uh, the French government was resistant uh, on two uh, notable uh, occasions uh, in, terms of, in terms of vetoing uh, the UK's accession. But it it was, I think, part of 
uh, a reformulation of British thinking about Britain's place in the world. This idea that Britain had lost an empire and not yet found a role, I think, is is misspoken because I think Britain had already decolonialized, uh, was already thinking about its commitments beyond Europe, but was becoming increasingly committed Europe to Europe, I think, in terms of the allocation of resources. Uh, and I think because of the community membership also diplomatically, that was obviously uh, a major focus in terms of thinking about how the UK would sit within international relations. But all of those residual responsibilities, both for countries that, would, that had become independent, and also, of course, it was both a nuclear power uh, and a, a permanent member of the UN Security Council. And, and those are two elements of, of continuity from that past to, to our current time. Thank you both for, for the very good overview of, of the situation um, when the UK joined. Um, there's already some hints at, at how that might have affected the UK's foreign policy um, as a member of the EU. Can, can you perhaps add a, a few reflections on that? In fact, I don't think we found it difficult. A political cooperation, as I say, was at a very early stage. And I suppose I would reveal, I mean, I'm I was actually doing political cooperation. I spent five years in the European Commission, but I also did political cooperation for a period. So, you know, I'm, I mean, I've had some first-hand experience, and particularly of this period. And I think we were able, I don't recognise the, th the thought, you know, that we found actually this area of, of the European Union, of European membership difficult. I think on the whole, we were able to be quite big players. Uh, and quite influential. And we succeeded, I think, in many respects, in forming quite a good relationship with France. I don't remember many you know, rows between the French and ourselves on, on, on the direction of, of policy. The one area where I think, which came later, where I think there was a real divergence between us, which was that the UK was much keener to see the enlargement of the European Union to, to include the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, the, the ex-Warsaw Pact. And the, France was much more suspicious of that. I think I think she saw it wrongly, in my view, uh, from her own point of view, as being somehow some zero minus that that France would actually lose her pivot position if this happened. I don't think it's been true, but I would say that that apart, uh, I'm not at all sure that uh, it changed how we would otherwise have conducted. This is what it might have been how we would otherwise have conducted our foreign policy, um, because frankly. The European Union took a long time, really, to become a major foreign policy player. We succeeded, I think, uh, in establishing a partnership between what the European Union did and what NATO did. We prevented divergence. Uh, we were always very keen on keeping them separate. And we had certain views about how the European Union should not develop in the defense and security sphere. But as for the roles that they played, on the whole, I think you know you didn't get you didn't get conflict between these two things. Thank you, Pauline. Richard, um, do you do you go in that direction too in your analysis of, of the uh, UK's membership and its influence on its foreign policy? On, on the on the foreign policy cooperation, I think absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating story. I think you know the evolution of foreign policy cooperation between the member states, because of course it was largely outside the the community structures, and that allowed for a great deal of flexibility in terms of the way that the system operated. And I think a, a significant characteristic of that was trust, because it allowed for a lot of trust building uh, between officials and for exchanges of views that would have been 
I think, more complicated within the community structure, you know, the yeah. way that it's organized, but also, let's say, the way that it's perhaps more documented. I think the other interesting thing about the system is it, it was there uh, as a system that allowed for sort of feeling out other states' positions and coming to a common view without being bound in a way that allowed for or the expectation that there would be certain kind of collective instruments to implement that foreign policy. I mean, it's up to um, the responsibility of national capitals uh, to see that through. Fantastic. Now, moving on to the 1990s, the UK was not always a supporter of developing the EU's foreign policy capacities here. And why was that? And to what extent would you say it missed a trick at this point? I think the the UK had a nuanced view. I I don't think it was... I don't think it was opposed to to more European foreign policy cooperation, but I think it had an understandable view as to what the both best structures and, and processes to do so. And I think I think there were there, were, there was a view that the, the communitization, uh, in other words, making it more like community business, particularly the role for the Commission uh, and a, and the sort of right of initiative type role, was something which was was not uh, the UK would not have been an enthusiast uh, for. But what we ended up with, I think, through the the Maastricht Treaty and the Common Foreign Security Policy uh, process that was created through that treaty was, in a large part, a lot of the old EPC system carried across. The arrangement we ended up with was a sort of hybrid system where uh, we we had a drawing closer together with the community, but we had the preservation of, of older elements of foreign policy cooperation, not least the presidency. Uh, system uh, and that rotating between the member states, um, which we've we've lost subsequently. What 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 was demonstrated once that system got underway is is what I call the Lego problem. In that there was a view about the common foreign security policy that you could, in some way, sort of build up building blocks. You know, a bit like little Lego blocks, and you could, in some way, build this great single European foreign policy. And I think that was a view in in some capitals. And actually. We watch children play with Lego. They tend not to build the thing that's the picture on the box. They tend to build a very large amorphous mass that doesn't really look like anything. So I think it was a sort of misstyled or misthought approach towards foreign policy making, and and there's been a bit of a walking back from that subsequently. Well, I think I think some important things happened in the wake of, I know, the wake of German unification. Um, in the you know, one of the things to emerge from it, obviously, was the drive towards the euro, uh, which which was a French drive, and there was a parting of the ways. Again, I suppose with hindsight, you know, the difficulty for Britain was we, we didn't have the same kind of enduring strategic alliance as Britain and France did, and we weren't able to create anything that was a permanent counterbalance to that, to see our, our view in a way prevail, um, which was which was difficult for all sorts of reasons, but not least because, you know, France and Germany were rather good at being willing to to work together um, or to reconcile differences that they did have uh, for for a common purpose. Uh, and and I think some of the, the promise that was there in the 1970s, you know, Britain, France and Germany working together back to our foreign policy cooperation and, and through the end of the Cold War got progressively more difficult uh, and remains very difficult today, frankly. Um, so I, you know, I think it's a fascinating period uh, in terms of Britain as a European power, Britain as a Euro-Atlantic power, and, and how European integration sort of ran away from the UK. I think. 
Pauline, you mentioned um, liberal interventionism mm. uh, and um, how, how perhaps can you tell us a little on how um, that approach to foreign policy waned and what what uh, and whether you you would consider David Cameron's years of, of a more passive passive in terms of its foreign policy um, and the implications for it, for the UK's international position. Yes, I would, I'm not trying to use the word passive. I think I'd use the word no, but, but cautious and more conservative, certainly conservative small c. I think, in a sense, liberal interventionism sort of ran out on itself. So it's it's having a it's having a, a negative effect at the moment, I think, on on political courage. But I think I think that what it did do, of course, was I think it was perceived as, you know, in a sense, as a setback. I think the uh, the political class, being put in that way, lost confidence. Uh, the average voter saw that this was this was not not a successful policy. Um, in many respects, there's been I would say less of a blowback than you might might have expected. Richard, I see you nodding. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think I think the 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 Cameron era foreign policy, foreign security policy, is is, is ripe for reappraisal because I mean there were there were some really significant achievements. You know, the Lancaster House. Uh, treaties with France and Tutatis uh, agreement on um, uh, nuclear cooperation. I mean, those, those were you know, the most significant bilateral agreements that the UK uh, has, has forged with France since the end of the, the Second World War. And they, they are still important for the UK, even if Anglo-French relations are rather difficult uh, at the moment. And, and as Britain and France are sort of doomed to cooperate, uh, I think that, that the fact that that scaffolding was put in place uh, is something that shouldn't be underestimated, uh, I think. And, and even the, the, the recent difficulties we've had between France and Germany, the security and defence policy relationship has continued. Uh, and certainly the sort of military to military relationship is, is also important. I, I, on the other side of the ledger, though, I think probably there was a there was naivety about China, uh, which, you know, we've, we've come back to come back to haunt us uh, and and a bit of a neglect on on Russia again which is something that we're we're reorganizing our, our thinking on subsequently but I think you know the 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 Cameron period which I think was important in in putting a full stop on that previous liberal interventionist thinking uh, and 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 did lead to some very important broader foreign policy uh, developments I think that, I think that uh, uh, Rich is right to say that actually the 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 Cameron period started uh, resulted in the, the start of some fairly new things, including as a backdrop, you know, the the emergence of of a new power balance in the world, which is the one that we now you know have have to tackle in a in a major way. Um, thank you, thank you both uh, for that. Just now moving on to the actual context of the referendum in 2016. So Britain's place in the world featured prominently in the campaign, uh, mainly as an argument actually to leave for the leave campaign. What were your views at the time on the claims both, both sides had uh, on the UK's position internationally? Well, I, I attended Mr. Cameron's speech at the British Museum, which I think was probably the, the most sort of foreign policy focused speech, uh, which was uh, often referred to in sort of apocalyptic 
terms. Um, in uh, I didn't I, when I was sitting there, maybe I wasn't paying attention, but I didn't feel that way uh, sitting at the speech. But I mean, it did set a tone in terms of introducing the the line of the campaign that you know there was a, a sort of foreign security and possibly defence policy cost. Uh, and of course, we then had lots of external intervention uh, on that, you know, with foreign leaders, Mr. Obama, of course, but also NATO Secretary General, I think, uh, and, and other, uh, other leaders were willing to say something about foreign policy uh, or the UK's place in, in the world or the impact of leaving the EU that perhaps um, wasn't, uh, wasn't elsewhere. What I didn't sense in the course of the campaign, there was, was a sort of a full rehearsal of, of what the alternative might look like once the UK was outside the EU. And there were there clearly were people thinking about that and, and were ready with ideas. And I think we didn't really get into the weeds, I think, when it came to, you know, what the, the sort of direct foreign policy uh, and security policy benefits were of, of membership, because, of course, the, the focus of the campaign uh, was on was on other issues. Um, but, you know, I think as we've discovered subsequently, um, Britain's role in Europe and Britain's role in the world was, was what was at stake, obviously. Um, but it wasn't. I think, articulated in those kind of terms. Thank you, Richard, <laughs> for taking a yeah, rather slippery question there, clearly. European leaders, I mean, were terrified of being accused of interfering. Um, I think it, and you know, I mean, the, 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 the uh, Remain campaign would have loved Angela Merkel, who was you know, still very, very, very well regarded to have said something. Um, but she, she, uh, she was not a great lady for making statements, actually, when you get down to it. Uh, I think two things that really attracted public opinion. Uh, one was the enormous sum of money that would be able to, would be available for the NHS and the budgetary advantage. And I think that did swing quite a lot of people. Um, and secondly, the, the flood of Syrian refugees in, in Germany. I mean, I think that was tremendously damaging. Uh, you know, one of those fortuitous things that happened. And so take back control. Uh, I think that really resonated. Um, and I do, I do myself think that if Angela Merkel had given David Cameron the emergency break, it would not have happened. He did not have anything that he could say that he had as a weapon against a flood here. So I think in, there are many, extra, many you know, extraneous uh, factors which entered into the entered into the, the political mix, which were you know, quite far distance from the, actual, from the actual issue and were being played with in ways which, which uh, wouldn't have enabled the, the average voter to understand at all the consequences of, of the decision. Uh, you mentioned one of the, the, the key slogans of the campaign, so take back control. What did you make of the slogan of Global Britain? What do you make of it now? <laughs> if you are going to, no. I uh, sort of wrench wrench the country out of the sockets that it's currently occupying. You do actually have to try to um, you know to 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 give it a new new positioning. So I think that was a perfectly sensible thing for I don't know if the lead camp to try and do. This country, we've taken a decision. I'm a Democrat. I accept it. We've got to find a new way forward. What does it consist of? It consists really of saying UK needs to reposition itself. And what it has done is put. No, front and centre, in a sense, the, the ambition that the country should you know, become masters of the technological revolution. And that's going to be the source of our wealth. 
one of, one of the things we now have to learn again is there are a lot of things we have to do for ourselves that we previously were done elsewhere. Um, we might have grumbled about that, but somebody else you know, was actually doing the doing. Uh, and we have to get back to, to uh, actually running the country in detail. But, you know, if the world becomes a more hostile place, the government you know, has to become more visible. It has to do more things. It has to be more obviously a protector of society. And you can see that happening again. Thank you, Pauline. Richard, would you like to give your views on Global Britain and as a slogan? I mean, I think Great Britain was, uh, Global Britain rather, was a, um, Global Britain was a reasonable placeholder concept, uh, idea. I think that the difficulty was that because of the the troubles that the UK had in negotiating new relationship with the EU, it didn't really have space to breathe, I think, in terms of you know, the, the, the broader ambition for UK foreign policy uh, until we had the integrated review. But, but you know, the, the Global Britain was successful in one important sense in that I don't think once we'd embarked on the, uh, on the uh, Brexit negotiations that there was the feeling that the UK would be able to replicate those third country trade deals uh, that the EU had. And, and that was something that the infrastructure was put in place and that was something that was done in a very timely fashion. So I think some credit should be given, you know, to all those involved that um, that pattern of trade relationships was to a very large degree uh, replicated the, the former EU third country trade relationship. So that's, if you like, the, the one bit of global Britain, I think you could put a, a tick uh, against. One of the things I do worry about the idea is, is how far it survives a change of government. Um, because, you know, the, the opposition is obviously not invested in that slogan, although one would hope that they're invested in an awful lot of what's contained within the integrated review uh, and, and the kind of things that we do face uh, as a country. So um, I think whatever we call it uh, and however we relabel it, um, the same things, the same problems will exist. Uh, and I suspect that many of the same solutions will be sought with perhaps a, a bit of a different emphasis on the way we talk about Europe, uh, perhaps. Thank you to you both. I'm just going, Joan, one final question on the negotiations, because uh, the context is the at the time was the, also Donald Trump was president of the US. And do you think this, uh, the, the negotiations would have been different had uh, Hillary Clinton won in 2016? Or is this irrelevant to the, to the shape of the negotiations? To be honest, I think it's marginal. I think there were other factors which were much more important. Um, but there was a certain amount, I suppose, of sort of political bolstering of, of, the, of the claims of the lead side that here was another, here was another benefit that would return to, uh, to departure. I'm, I'm sceptical that it will have played much, much uh, part in on the actual vote. I think it's a great what-if question. I, I think that, you know, the fact that the EU itself, you know, the, the day after the referendum result, you know, the heads of all the institutions made clear that they thought the Article 50 process was, was the basis on which to proceed means that we have to think about the agency that the EU had. And I think, you know, a, a US pressure would uh, also, I think, Possibly being counterproductive, certainly in some yeah. capitals. Yeah, I think I think the one the one area where it may have made a difference is in in security and defence, because you know Mrs Mrs May had this idea that we'd have a sort of two pillared relationship, the economic relationship and the 
sort of security uh, relationship, which which I don't think was as fully rehearsed in other European capitals as it might have been, particularly on the, the security and defence side. And I and I wonder if we can sort of rerun history whether you know a different US administration that that did want to see that work better, and particularly on the Galileo decision, you know whether the US had applied pressure, which I think you know was, was a an absurd, frankly, strategic misstep uh, on the part of of the EU. You know, I, I could imagine that we might have seen something different uh, in that area. I'm just going to ask you a follow up, um, if I can, Richard, on on your question about um, where the EU fits within the integrated review, because I think you left that um, dangling or to come back to. I just think, wonder if you could sort of fill that in, because that has been um, focused on, criticised, um, it's loomed large in in people's assessment of. Global Britain. What, what what would you say about that? I mean, thankfully, I'm not a politician, uh, and I'm not an advisor to a prime minister. So I would, have, I'm sure, I would have written the text slightly uh, differently. But there were very clever people involved in in drafting the text of the integrated review, and I, as I, said, I think they did a good job. I mean, we, you know, we've we've ended up in an unhappy place, I think, in terms of the foreign security and defence policy relationship between the EU and the UK, uh, and. The integrated review, I think, for many people on the continent, sort of reinforced the, the view of the UK that it wasn't interested in having a security and defence policy relationship with the with the EU, which is, I think, maybe not quite right in the sense that I think the existing models of the EU's relationships with third countries are rather unattractive, uh, I think, for a country like the UK. Uh, and uh, and you know, we... The, the British government, obviously, in the integrated review, didn't signal that it, it saw that uh, as an area of priority, but it did signal that it saw uh, its relationship with uh, individual European countries as being extremely important. And I think also signalling, as the document does, in effect, a sort of British version of strategic autonomy, really, uh, that you know there is the basis for a, for a conversation between Europe and uh, EU Europe uh, and the UK uh, on on how you would have serious uh, sort of future future cooperation in those areas that that everybody's now uh, worried about in terms of our our vulnerabilities. You know what what kind of future relationship does the EU want to have uh, with the UK beyond um, you know those rather clunky third country relationships that it has? So I think. It, the integrated view made it easy for the EU to say that the UK wasn't there to tango, but you do really need two to tango. And I think the, the EU probably needs to think a bit harder about uh, how uh, and, and through what mechanisms it can, it can work with the UK in those areas, beyond bilaterally, of which, of course, there's an awful lot going on. Pauline, do you share that view at all? Yes, I, yes, I do. I mean, I think, I think to some extent real life has already intervened. I mean, we started off with you know, this current government, I mean, uh, not actually being willing to set up any kind of institutionalized relationship. Uh, and that's still true. Uh, but, but real life has intervened in the form of Ukraine. Uh, it has, I think, killed stone dead the notion that you know, the UK was somehow going to withdraw from, from the, its role in the security of Europe or that it was not going to be a really that it was going, not going to be interested any longer in the security of its own continent, etc. I think I think that's no, that's for the birds. Uh, I think it's been recognised as being a strong and and indeed, I mean, tried hard to be leading player, and I think on have done well. I can't help feeling that uh, at the moment what we're witnessing on the whole is the hour of NATO, which 
back again, big player, and where legitimately quite a lot of these issues require resolution. But you can't have now have a complete picture in Europe. Is it sort of domestically possible for a a new prime minister, to, um, even a new prime minister, to to say cooperation with the EU would be a good thing, even if it is limited to to the Ukraine and and this and this or, or wider security issues? And, and the second question is, um, I mean, you you introduced NATO, um, and, and of course NATO is very important, but. Um, the interaction between um, NATO and the EU over Ukraine has been one of the most interesting sort of characteristics. And, you know, following Madrid, there's going to be a lot more cooperation between those two organisations. So in a way, where does the UK fit in relation to those two things, um, if, it, if it continues to regard the EU as kind of toxic? I think probably for as long as Conservatives are in office, with the party quite split, it's going to be doing rather than saying. I think mounting great theses about the European Union is going to be quite difficult. Uh, getting on with the business, uh, I think, is the way forward for any, for any leader. And I think life will answer this one. We are now posed with sufficiently important and urgent questions about the security of our continent and, and indeed its economic livelihood. That conversation does, absolutely does have to take place. So I think it, I think it will happen. Richard, do you share that view or...? Well, I, I sort of feel as if we've, we've settled into a relationship with the best of frenemies uh, since we since we left in, in January 2021, because on the one hand, you know, there are, Pauline says, you know, these these real uh, and almost intractable issues on, on Northern Ireland. But, you know, the Ukraine war uh, has also demonstrated that certainly bilaterally, unilaterally and in all sorts of ways that, you know, we are we're doomed to cooperate uh, if we're going to have a you know, an effective security order and, and political order uh, uh, in Europe. And I think the difficulty for the UK uh, is that we've, we obviously have a preference um, for, for doing things in ways which are advantageous to us. So we like the G7, for example, um, uh, but it's not possible to do everything that one wants through that arrangement. Uh, and on, on sanctions, as we've already discussed, you know, the, the EU is significant. And for energy policy, I think we're all... Uh, you know, more than well aware that uh, that you know the the European uh, energy space is is one in which the EU uh, member states uh, are um, connected to the UK, and we've seen that demonstrated very recently. You know, with the UK being a net exporter of, of gas and electricity uh, to to the continent and the EU member states. So, you know, it, it, the the question will be, you know, what does it matter? Uh, that we have this uh, sort of sniping uh, type relationship between the two sides uh, and this sort of very scratchy uh, politics. Well, it does matter, uh, I think, for the long term, particularly for the ambitions that both the UK uh, has uh, and the ambitions that the EU has. Will a change of political leadership make a difference? Well, yes, but, um, you know, the UK, the UK now has a new European strategy or European policy. I mean, we, we have worked quite hard to build bilateral relationships with countries, particularly in the Baltic uh, and, and the East, and are viewed as a reliable security partner uh, for states uh, in that region. Uh, and I think the other side of that is that the relationship between Britain, France and Germany through something like the E3, for example, this arrangement that's supposed to bring us together, is it's not that it's malfunctioning, but it really doesn't have the ability to take up some of the slack, uh, I think, in the, in the broader UK-EU relationship. I mean, where I think we'd like to end up is a very 
comfortable E2 relationship, you know, the UK and the EU. But I don't think the, the EU was willing to sort of grant that to the UK. And probably what the UK wants is something like the relationship that the EU has with the United States, which is very dense, very complicated, under-institutionalized in comparison to the relationship with a lot of third countries. Um, but one in which, you know, there's a constant pulse uh, of, of of interaction and, and both sides see one another as as partners. And that probably would be the ideal condition to to reach, uh, I think, in terms of what would be the most functional and effective relationship for, for both sides. But as I say, that's that's one that would probably be under-institutionalized from, from the EU uh, uh, perspective, notwithstanding, you know, the fact that uh, our government hasn't necessarily handled uh, its, uh, its public diplomacy uh, with Europe as well as it could have done. That's classic British understatement. Yes, I think, I think that comes across very, very powerfully. I mean, I think that one of the, one of the interesting things to, to know more about would be what actually is being done rather than said. But I think that's going to be, that's going to be sort of very difficult to, to discover. Um, I mean, sadly, we are running out of time. But, and, and this is where I'm going to ask you to, uh, to gaze into the future and make your predictions. Um, so I mean, I'm going to ask you what you think the most important um, foreign policy challenges the UK is likely to face in the coming years are and how well challenged it is to meet. And the sort of second question um, is, do you think it's inevitable that the UK's relationship with the EU will improve, if not under Boris Johnson's immediate successor, but the one after that? It seems to me that though Richard, I think, has correct, correctly said that the Labour Party is not, not signed up to the integrated review, and why should they be? It's very hard, it seems to me, to to see a you know a better a better construct for our future. I think I think it is I think that that is it is pretty well done. I think is there's a lot of detail you can criticise, and I would certainly I would say it already we need implementation. But I think I think the positioning is about as good as you can get, and you can see some of the bits of of being put in place. I mean, one of the genesis of AUKUS, it's actually a potentially quite important uh, move with a, with a partner with whom we could develop you know, a, a really quite in-depth relationship because distance doesn't matter really these days in an important part of the world and on the basis of pretty much shared uh, interest. I think in, in many ways that that, uh, that path, I think, has, has got a lot that it could yield of of benefit to the to the country when it comes to our relationship with the european union i mean i would dearly love it to be easier and better and closer uh, than it is um i think that i think it's likely to go down the road really uh, for quite a bit of time really building on ad hoc consultation rather than somehow a design emerging because I think a design will only emerge when actually day-to-day life is not a lot easier. And I think day-to-day life, the easing of day-to-day life is going to be largely by talking to each other when you need to talk to each other. And I think that need is going to grow. Um, so so I, I, how long will this take? I mean, I think, you know, decades are nothing in foreign policy, but I would... <laughs> hope and trust, actually, that we will be in a different position when it comes to, to the ability to pick up the telephone um, you know, by 2030. Um, and we haven't talked about climate change, but we need, you know, this is an area where, where we are going to have to cooperate and where actually 
um, the, we're all going to have to cooperate with China too. And uh, one of the things we, that we need to do collectively is work out a proper, proper uh, strategy towards China. And that's very, very big. Richard, what are, you, what are your views? Well, I mean, you know, the, the optimist in me says, if you look at the, the integrated review in the strategic compass, I mean, we, we, we're spending time worrying about the same things. Perhaps we worry about them in a slightly different order or, or different degrees, but broadly, we're concerned about the same things. I think you know we we could have that rank order of things that we should be worrying about a lot, and, and climate is obviously close to the top. I think the thing that's shifted significantly recently is that we see the European and Indo-Pacific theatres connected, and I think NATO. You know, the fact that NATO now sees those two things very much together is a major mind, uh, mindset shift on the part of Europeans. Um, will take a little bit of a while to be fully processed in the other end of Brussels at the EU end. But I think we're, you know, that's already that's already happened. And I think, you know, the interesting thing about the UK is is the UK was an early adopter of of greater concern about China. It took a while uh, behind the United States. And on, on Russia, you could say, I mean, the, the UK demonstrated quite a lot of sagacity uh, on Russia and, and took early action in particular when it came to, came to uh, Ukraine. Uh, and now um, that's where I think we've got a nice correspondence uh, of interest on the part of some European states and, and the UK. There are two things I think the, where where the, the both sides probably spend a lot of time worrying, but they worry about them in different ways. One is the US. And as Pauline says, you know, the US is absolutely key to how we provide for European security and how we manage the, the major systemic change that we're going through. Uh, and obviously we have no say in the US presidential uh, elections, but we'll watch them closely. But the US has always made the weather or made a lot of the weather for Europeans in terms of their security. So what the US worries about, we often spend time worrying about. The other is I think the UK will spend quite a lot of time worrying about the EU and the EU's integrity yeah. uh, and the EU's ability to, to hold itself together. That's a great paradox, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, a, a major order worry for the UK is just going to be what the EU can do collectively, uh, whether it's on energy, um, you know, whether it's the sort of stability of the eurozone, uh, and so on, uh, and so on. That and that gives the UK a different perspective uh, on the on the EU uh, by being a non-member. That we uh, we obviously, you know, strangely want the EU to succeed. Uh, we don't want to have instability or additional instability in our in our neighbourhood, um, and. Uh, and, and how we think about and manage that with others, not just not just Europeans. And, and that's back to the UK being a, a Euro-Atlantic power for me and, and our connection to the United States, that um, we worry a lot about the Euro-Atlantic area and the EU is a large part of the Euro-Atlantic area, which means that we're also going to part, partner with others who worry a lot about the Euro-Atlantic area. <laughs> that means the US um, uh, and it, it means other outsiders like Japan and, and, and Australia, for example. So I think that's the really interesting place we've ended up uh, in terms of in terms of you know when when Britain sort of uh, joined the, the community, we, we felt as it felt for many that we were walking away from uh, our sort of global footprint, and we've ended up coming back to having a global footprint because we're worrying quite a lot about our neighbourhood and and others outside are worrying it as well. So uh, an extraordinary journey, really. I think in terms of foreign policy preoccupations uh, for the UK. 
Well, sadly, we've reached the end of what's been a really fascinating conversation. So thank you both for um, joining us and, um, and uh, well, for, for sharing your insights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you to our guests. Please join us for the next episode of Good Neighbours.